0: You guys are good. I didn't even have to tell you to be seated. (laughs) Way more trained than Cedarview. Yeah, that'll be good. I've always thought that's funny, though. I'm not sure, like, if you have to go to school and, like, figure out, like, you know, doing, like, the worship flow and everything. Like, because if you sit down and stand up too much that folks get a little upset about that, you know what I mean? Like, hey, look, I'm not coming for Zumba or aerobics class. Like, I just want to come and worship. I don't need to be getting my squats in for the day. But, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure what the balance is there. But anyway, you guys as well. That's not in my notes. That's probably why it's not as funny. But um, we're going to be talking today. I'm going to be preaching from James chapter 1. So you can go ahead and turn there in your Bible. Um, And we're going to be discussing, like, I would title it Trials Rejoiced and Lacking Deceased. So, um, a well-known scientist once gave a public lecture on astronomy. He described how the Earth orbits around the Sun and how the Sun, in turn, orbits around the center of a vast collection of stars called our galaxy. At the end of the lecture, a little old lady at the back of the room got up and said, what you have told us, is rubbish. The world is really a flat plate supported on the back of a giant tortoise. The scientist gave a superior smile before replying, what is the tortoise standing on? Oh, you're very clever, young man, very clever, said the old lady, but it's turtles all the way down. Infinite regression, even if we've never heard of that term, um, is something we're all familiar with. An infinite regression is a problem of philosophy where every justification that's given requires another justification. Now, that's all a fancy way of saying something that we experience with children all the time. So I imagine a future conversation with my son looking a little something like this. Dad, how did you and mom get married? Well, Asher, when uh, we were both adults, we began to fall in love and wanted to be like Jesus in the church, and so we got married. Why? Well, when you turn a certain age, you begin to feel a little bit differently about girls, and sometimes, if, you, if the Lord wills, um, you find one that you spend the rest of your life with. Why? Well, we were, uh, we were made that way, Asher. Why? Why? Because we were made to reflect God's plan of redemption through marriage. Why? Because God saw fit to display his glory in us. Why? Because I said so. Now go clean your room. Now, an infinite regression, as simply put, is that. Every answer we give, we say, why? Why? Why, why, why? And this has been an issue of philosophy for thousands of years. Uh, They're called skeptics, and basically they break philosophy. Because when it's all said and done, you can't keep answering whys, right? There has to be a starting point somewhere. Now, um, before we get on, uh, let's encourage ourselves with the goodness of God's word, and I will read James chapter 1, starting in verse 2, and I will read through verse 18. Count in all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Pray with me. Gracious Father, after receiving you from grace upon grace and acknowledging our dependence on your Spirit, we find ourselves constantly returning to our own efforts to construct a goodness in which we may boast. Instead of depending wholly upon Christ, we trust in the rags of our own pretended righteousness. This is evident in the way in which we use every scrap of our own performance to raise ourselves above others, and in the delight we take in pointing out the weaknesses and sins of others. We trust in our good theology, our church attendance, our Bible studies, our witnessing, in anything and everything apart from from Christ alone. Father, we confess this before You this morning. Father, I pray that we would see from our text that if left to our own devices, we would have no wisdom, we wouldn't grow, and we would be lacking in everything. Father, teach us to trust you and to find joy in our victory over all trials. We love you. It's in Jesus Christ's name we get to pray. Amen. So we'll be breaking our text this morning into three reasons to rejoice in trials. Uh, But what's all this business about infinite regression, right? Why did I go into that story and all that? Uh, The story I told us is honestly, um, to open us up, is honestly a really funny story if you think about it, to think of an older woman that chose to sit in this cosmology lecture for whatever reason, and then to come up to the professor afterwards and declare, oh no, sir, the world is on a plate and it's held up by turtles on turtles on turtles on turtles, turtles all the way down. Sort of an absurd story, right? But she's hitting at something that we can use to help us understand the goodness of God's graces and of the good news of the gospel. Our text this morning builds itself upon the reality of our trials and the reality of our lack in those trials. And so our theme this morning will be something of a motto or a battle cry that we can shout forth to the world around us as we go forth from today. Our trials are rejoiced, our lacking is deceased, and the gospel is good all the way down. The beauty of Jesus and the good news of the gospel is an ocean too deep to comprehend. Where it is absurd for turtles on turtles on turtles standing on each other, holding up the world by the strength of their little turtle backs, it is completely logical, completely beautiful, and completely factual for the gospel at every level and in every facet to be the pure, mystifyingly good news that God has delivered to us. It's good all the way down. No matter how far you go, no matter how deeply you drink from the fountain of the gospel, it will never run dry and it will always taste sweet. In our text, James unravels some depth of the gospel, some of the depth of the gospel by reminding us that even in trials we have reason to rejoice. For the very hardships that come our way are but tools for the overwhelming infinite goodness of Jesus to use for his ultimate victory in bringing us cleansed and lacking not a thing unto himself in the last day. Trials rejoiced, lacking deceased, and the gospel is good all the way down. But so, again, James gives us three reasons to rejoice in trials. One, rejoice in trials. Our trials give us what we lack. Two, rejoice in trials. The fear of the Lord conquers physical and spiritual trials. Three rejoice in trials, we worship the giver of all that we lack. We all still lack something, or honestly, um, maybe we, we wouldn't say it out loud, but we probably all lack quite a few things. So let's look at James' exhortation to grow in our sanctification and in our understanding of God's word. Our first reason to rejoice in trials. Rejoice in trials. Our trials give us what we lack. That's going to be verses 2 through 4. I will read and you can listen. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now consider for a moment that these words were written directly to you. We'll say that they were written to Covenant Life Church. Consider what trials James might be referring to for you guys and your church. Once you have one of those or two of those in mind, consider what trials, if James were to be writing this to you personally. What trials are you experiencing in your own life that James might be referring to here? Now, with those in mind, consider that you are being commanded to rejoice in those trials. But what does that mean? Does that mean that we are like the creepy, weird kind of puppets that uh, are just smiling through the pain that you get your arm cut off and (laughs) I'm just rejoicing in this trial and my arm's over there woo No, no, that's absurd. Has nothing to do with whether or not you smile. Has nothing to do with whether or not you can tell jokes. It has nothing to do with whether or not you can come into this room every Sunday and tell everyone around you, I had a good week. No. You can be honest and tell everyone that you had a bad week. Every week. But the joy we find in trials and the command is in our understanding of what is to come. So let's get into that. For you know, are we just going to smile through the pain? No. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Why, James, am I to rejoice in my trials? Because of what's what going to bring me. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Raise your hand if you feel like you are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Yeah, right? No one. But trials, James says, that is going to bring you steadfastness. And that steadfastness by the glory of God himself, our steadfastness in faith on that last day, He will take all of our lacking away by giving us full glorified bodies in Him. All sin and all tears will pass. So, because we are commanded time time and time again to look unto the reconciliation of all things, to say, come Lord Jesus, and to welcome the passing of this life with open arms. Paul says that it is you know, good for me to stay, but it's pretty good for me to go. In fact, I'd rather go, <laughs> but I stay for you. We can find conquering joy in those things because of a far-sighted perspective in a nearsighted world. But what is steadfastness, and why is it so important to James? Even if you don't know the phrase, uh, most of us in here would believe in what is called the preservation of the saints. Uh, the doctrinal truth that it teaches us is that when God has caused a person to be born again, that it is him that keeps us, holds us, and secures us, not our own, efforts. Just as a good father wouldn't allow his son to run out into the street, oh, you just do you, kid. You have free will. I'm just going to let you go play in that intersection. No. A good father grabs that kid by the arm and yanks him back out of the road. That, in a nutshell, is the preservation of the saints. However, the only real test of knowing, for us, in our perspective, the only real test of knowing whether someone is truly a believer is to watch them experience trials and to conquer them and to continue to experience trials until the last day, until they die. Right? That's really the best that we can do as far as me having any measure of assurance on whether or not you know the Lord. With that in mind, the early church and even the church in other areas around the world didn't treat Christianity as a joke or a social club as we are tempted to in the comfort of America from time to time. Christ was their only hope and their only refuge in the world and the fires of trials and the suffering that they in those sufferings in those fires they fled to Jesus and they fled to the gathering of the saints. So it gets even more convoluted when we have a comfortable Christianity in America. Because what trials do we really have that allow any of our brothers and sisters to have any assurance of our knowing Christ? Suffice it to say, steadfastness is a huge message in the scriptures, but nothing explains the idea quite as well as the book of Hebrews, Um, which is a very complicated book. But I will be running through a series of verses that run through the vein of Hebrews um, that really give us a painting, an idea of this concept of steadfastness, of continuing unto the end. Do not fall away. It is a race to be run, and it is the finish line that we are running to. Right? Right? Explore the thoughts found in Hebrews with me. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What hope do we have before a living God if we scoff at the good news of the gospel? To start, right? The gospel that has been for hundreds of generations being worked out and revealed slowly, progressively to God's people and now to the whole world. Is is there anyone here that is ethnically Jewish? I'm not. So we are a room full of Gentiles. And praise God that through all those generations and through that revelation, eventually that gospel was opened up to us. What hope do we have if we neglect that salvation? (laughs) That's where Hebrews starts. But yet, how often do we pursue dead idols? Even those of us in this room that claim to know Christ. Even me, (laughs) that is preaching Christ now. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So the author of Hebrews says... Our share in Christ is only proven if we hold our original confidence to the end. Our share in Christ, our salvation, is only as authentic as our adoration for Jesus Christ. Our confidence is not only in Jesus getting us into heaven, but that he is a real and present delight right now, this day. Our share in Christ is not merely hope deferred until our deaths, but praise God we can experience his grace and presence in this life with his people in his church. But, we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold that adoration and that confidence unto the end. And again as we I'll stop here to clarify once more it is no efforts of man that keeps himself in the hand of God but it is a proof that a man is not in the hand of God if he does not hold his confession until the end Does that make sense? Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those that through faith and patience inherit the promises. So this puts a twist on this perseverance to the end, to that finish line. Consider how many of us strive to show ourselves approved, and then how many of us are content sliding into heaven by the hairs of our chinny-chin-chins. If you truly view Jesus as beautiful, then you are going to pursue him with vigor. I'll give give you an example. If I were, I don't have this kind of money, so don't get your hopes up. If I were to offer all of you a million dollars. Shoot, a billion dollars for the sake of the argument. Okay? If I were to offer you a billion dollars to one spend an hour a day in devotion to the Lord, in prayer, in reading the scriptures, and two, a billion dollars now. Um on top of that, I expected you to gather with the saints as often as your schedule would permit to worship the king in all of his glory. And three, I expected you, heaven forbid, to intentionally invest in evangelistic relationships within your own circles. And at the end of three months... I would give you a billion dollars for that. How many of us would do it? Show of hands? Uh Uh-huh. Now, this is what convicts me. Why don't you do it anyway? Why don't I do it anyway? Do we view Christ as beautiful? Obviously, we don't view him as as beautifully as a billion dollars. Desires, motives, things that we think are lovely, that is what drives us to accomplish tasks. I don't take out the trash or get flowers or do whatever else for anybody, right? I do that for the one I love. I don't change anyone's diapers. I change my kids' diapers because I love them. And if we love Christ, what should that mean in terms of our adoration and devotion to him? Do not be sluggish, but be imitators of those that through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast to the, our confession of hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. God is good and gives us no reason to doubt that he's going to hold up his end of the bargain, right? So this gives us another facet, another fullness to this idea of finishing the race because one unfortunate thing about finishing the race, like if I told you the billion dollar thing, how many of you actually think that I have a billion dollars to give, right? So who's going to actually try and do it thinking that they're actually going to get a billion dollars, I don't know that I could afford to buy enough Monopoly sets to give you a billion dollars worth of Monopoly money. Okay? We have no reason to doubt that God will hold up his end of the bargain. We are blind, deaf, and dumb creatures that are enamored with sin and idolatry. By God's grace, he revealed to us our wickedness and he has purchased us with the blood of his son. You have no reason to waver as if you were trusting me to pay you, okay? Because I, my bank account ain't that deep. But God, who promise us, promises us and guides us and is the creator of all things and that has every storehouse, every vault, Every container of good things and graces and spiritual blessings, he is the one that's bankrolling this thing. Right? Rest in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39. There have been many that have gone before us that showed that they did not truly believe the gospel, right? How many of us have seen friends or family endure a trial, but rather than seeking Jesus, they harden their hearts and hold anger against him? Maybe someone they love was taken from them. Maybe they lost their job. Maybe their spouse left them. Whatever it is. These trials are meant to refine us and purify us. But for those who have not been truly born again, if being born again is us being born again to be created as gold, if you will, then for all those that have not been born again, then when they go through the furnace, they're just burned up. We go through the furnace and we are refined. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. And finally, our hope, our rest, and our life is found in considering Jesus who ran this race ahead of us. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners as we run this race we consider christ in every trials in every trial brothers and sisters consider christ who endured all that we have and yet was without sin he is able to understand us and be sympathetic with us because he has lived among us praise god that he came down to pursue wicked deaf blind dumb idolaters such as us. And again, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. To wrap this point up, if we trust in everything, trust and understand the conquering victory we have in Christ, then each and every trial that we have is nothing more than fuel for the fire, for our adoration of Christ. Gold does not cower before the furnace. Gold does not cower at the thought of being misshapen and melted down by the heat and the pressures of life, because it knows that on the other side, it's going to come out more pure, and more of those impurities will melt away. Likewise, the cancer-ridden man does not cower before the surgeon's table or the surgeon's hand. If that surgeon says, oh, sir, everything is operable. I can remove every speck of cancer within you. He says, praise God. And allows him to cut away at his flesh. Do what you want, doc. Remove this cancer from me. And likewise, we know that even in the pain of the furnace, even in the pain of the knife, the surgeon's knife, that we are coming out on the other side, purified and more like Christ and closer to our Finish line. Rejoice in trials. Our trials give us what we lack. Trials rejoiced, lacking deceased, and the gospel is good all the way down. Now that's the longest point by far. So we're making good progress. Our second reason to rejoice, however, is rejoice in trials. The fear of the Lord conquers physical and spiritual trials. That's going to be verses 5 through 15. To start though, let's read verses 5 through 9. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We just learned that trials produce steadfastness, and if steadfastness makes, it, makes us complete, liking in nothing, that sounds great, but I lack something right now. and That's wisdom. <laughs> right? So James gave us the end of the story, and now he's about to come back, and tell us the beginning of the story. Trials are going to make you perfect, complete, lacking in nothing one day, but if you anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. What about right now? We lack a whole lot right now, right? James tells us if we, ask, or if we lack wisdom, ask God, and to help us with this transition, think of, think of it like this. The local church is a microcosm, is a shadow, is a small representation of what is to come in the completed universal church, right? There's a sense in which the universal church exists right now, but there's also a sense in which the universal church is not yet completed, because there might be someone that's born tomorrow that still hasn't heard the gospel that's supposed to, (laughs) right? But what we are here represents the future larger. Now, take that concept and consider this. Everything that we just learned from Hebrews also applies here. James is using the same idea. Think of the entirety of the Christian life as a big T, capital T, trial. Right? And at the end of it, you are left perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But all of our little t, little t trials are the same thing. Each trial, we ask God for wisdom that we lack, so that we are brought closer and closer to the ultimate completion that is lacking in nothing. So each trial that we face, praise God, is another representative of the whole of the Christian life. So every time we have confidence, every time we have success, every time the Lord brings us through the difficulties of a trial, we can praise God then say, praise God that one day all my trials will be conquered just as this one was. And that's a good and present grace. So first... What does the imagery communicate about James' point? He uses very vivid language there, right? A wave of the sea, driven and tossed about by the wind. The wave of the sea is being pushed one direction, and then another, and then another, and then another, right? With no driving force of its own. But what is the point that James is making here? The man that has no driving force, James means faith, is just using prayer as a shotgun effort um, among the other options of the day. That might be self-help, tarot cards, horoscopes, friends, family, society, whatever it is. They're just like shotgunning. okay, I'm going to pray to God, I'm going to pray to Allah, I'm going to pray to uh, Buddha, uh, someone's got to answer me, right? He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He's just going whatever direction the wind blows him that day. But let's flip the statement. For James, James, it becomes obvious that who has faith and who does not based on how someone reacts to opposing forces, right? James says that the double-minded man is blown about, driven and tossed by the wind, which means the inverse of that is that the faith-filled man has a driving force, of his own and the wind may blow left right up down but he will continue forward the man driven by genuine faith will withstand the tempests of trials by the strong arm of the lord in his grace and mercy and yet all that explanation completely misses the simple and beautiful promise of this text, right? When you lack wisdom, God has plenty to give. All the rest were just qualifiers for that statement. Just ask in faith. Just believe that God has that which you're asking him for. Because if we're being honest, it's kind of dumb to ask him if you don't believe that he has it anyway how many of us would go to a hobo and ask him for a hundred bucks? He's homeless. (laughs) Why would we think that he has the money? We go to the rich man and ask him for a hundred bucks, right? Likewise, when we go before God, if we don't believe that he is the rich man, we're just driven and tossed by the wind. We're just (laughs) living on a prayer, just not to the right person. Oh. But what is wisdom? Wisdom isn't necessarily telling you whether or not you should homeschool, which we don't know what we're going to do with that yet. It isn't always whether or not you should buy another church building. I'm sure you guys don't know whether or not you should do that yet. Sometimes it is those things. But also, what you can count on is that wisdom every time is what? Beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now that doesn't sound super applicable, right? Like, why would I just want to be scared of God? It's not really what it means. So consider this in every trial seeing God as king and fearing him in reverence is enough because that revered king is also your father your bridegroom your master and your friend the fear of the lord is simply recognition of his power recognizing that he can do what he wants. And that is a bit of a scary thing, right? Someone having the power to erase you from existence at any moment. You should fear that power. But praise God that he is not just some bully, right? this same God that we fear is also the one that goes before us into battle. And so wisdom, the fear of the Lord, every time we ask God for wisdom, he will show himself as he should be known. And when we know who God is, That's enough to get us through any trial, because we know what the finish line is. Now from here, James offers some sample trials, if you will, Um, gives some examples um, to help us understand how to apply these things. One physical, one spiritual. We'll tackle the physical physical first, and then we'll hit the spiritual. So physical trials in verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers oh, withers the grass. The flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also the rich man will fade away in his pursuit. There's one key truth that we could talk about from different angles, but there's one key truth that's found in these verses. Who's supposed to boast? Both of them. Kind of a crazy thing, right? We would understand the poor man boasting in his poverty because, well, all the lacking that I have in worldly possessions, I am rich in Christ. Praise God! I'm going to boast about that. But the language here says that the rich man should not just cry. Oh, yeah, if you're rich, you should weep about it. No, he should boast in his humiliation. Because everything that he has will be taken from him. Now, before we explain what that means, um, consider that Stephanie and I are, by American statistics and standards, much closer to being poor than we are to being rich, right? And so, you know, some of us might be the same level as us. Some of us might be at differing levels. That's all fine. But consider that Stephanie and I are rich as it relates to this text. And why is that? So, because I still have enough possessions to trust in my own possessions, rather than Christ, I am rich. Because I am able to, if I need to make more money, just go work more hours. Because I could make it through with our current level of income and not pray once in six months, I am rich. And most of us here probably are too. But our boasting, our opportunity to boast, is every time someone talks about all that they have and all that we have, we can say, hey, look, my house, my bank account, my college fund for my kids, that's all garbage if I have Christ. And all of it will pass away. Ecclesi- have you ever read Ecclesiastes? It will bum you out. You build a kingdom, you hand it over to your idiot son, and he messes it all up for you. You have riches, you buy everything, and then there's nothing left to buy. Window shopping, I just bought the whole Window. You have wisdom, then you realize that everything, eh, you're wise enough to realize how useful or useless everything is. (laughs) Throw it all away, and we can boast that everything that I have is worth nothing next to Christ. The rich man has a unique opportunity to speak to the value of Jesus, Oh, of course, the poor man wants Jesus, right? He doesn't have anything else to want. Sure, he wants Jesus. The rich man gets to say, oh no, I have all that. But it ain't worth anything. I have Christ. And that is more valuable than my bank account. Spiritual trials. Verses 12 through 15. Gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Be reminded and encouraged, as James reminds us of the earlier truth, found in verses two through four, here again in verse 12. As James begins to under discuss the spiritual truths, he gives us the end of the story, again, before the beginning. The whole narrative of James has, again, served as a story told backwards. In the case of fiction, this would be an awful way to tell stories, right? I'm not sure. I, I have seen Fight Club and enjoyed it. I'm not sure if I should admit that here. But so for anyone that hasn't seen it, it's a twist ending, and that's the whole point of the movie. If I saw that twist ending at the beginning of the film, there'd be no reason to watch the rest of the movie. Okay? Okay? Like, that's, an aw- that's awful storytelling. In-, in fact, now people call it spoiling, spoilers for the end of the film, right? But for our lives, you better believe I want each and every spoiler that I can get because I have to experience it. Consider the hopelessness consider how difficult it would be to strive moving forward if we didn't have any confidence that we would be with Christ in the last day. He didn't have to tell us that. We didn't have to know what the end of the story is. He is worth us worshiping and serving, even if at the end of the story is us being condemned to hell. But he chose, God chose, to be gracious to us and tell us the end of the story. James, by the inspiration of the Spirit, chose to tell us, hey, look, those that make it through these trials, you're going to get the crown of life. You'll be with Christ for all eternity. But so these spiritual trials... Bring us back in. James tells us, as I mentioned before, desires are what drive us, right? Each one of us is lured away and enticed by his own desire, even as we consider That God in his great mercy, while we were yet sinners, sent Jesus Christ to die in our behalf, that we might be given the right to become children of God and be sealed and indwelled by the Holy Spirit himself. Even knowing that our future dwelling is in the bosom of Christ, that we can, with every thought, with every breath, with every moment, of our existence for the rest of eternity, will be spent worshiping him in complete satisfaction. Even knowing those things, we are lured away and enticed by our own desires. What does that tell you about your heart and your desires? What crooked and wicked creatures are we that we are so easily fooled and drawn away by people and thoughts and things that are so utterly dissatisfying and kind of gross? Not tasty, like the sweet water, the living water, or the bread of life. Don't get it twisted, brother and sister. Trials will come by order of God. Absolutely. But temptation? Those are on us. God cannot tempt anyone because he cannot offer anything but himself. God can only glorify himself because he is the only one worth glorifying. And he will never offer us temptation because he cannot be tempted with anything inferior. Did we hear that? Consider. Consider. God cannot tempt us because he himself cannot be tempted. How we apply that? In other words, we are so backwards and wicked that when God offers us steak, we break our teeth upon rocks. God is not tempted by the rocks. He's offering us the meat of the word of his graces. And he just, why would you eat rocks? We are wicked. We are lured away and enticed by our own desires that tell us that rocks are tasty. God is not tempted as we are. Simply because he knows the taste of steak, namely himself. We must kill evil desires in our heart. Any trial given to us is to refine us from the impurities and allow us to see Jesus more clearly, as the vision of all beauty, of all love, and all contentment. When we are tempted to sin, that is us in our wickedness twisting and manipulating the beautiful tool that God uses trials to be. Flee from sinful desire, Christian. Sin brings forth Rejoice in trials, fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord conquers both physical and spiritual trials. Trials are rejoiced, lacking, deceased. And praise God that the gospel is good all the way down. Our third reason to rejoice in trials, and this is where we'll conclude. Rejoice in trials, we worship the giver of all that we lack. Verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James, the author, Of the book of James is the half brother of Jesus himself. Now consider the gravity. I've said brothers and sisters multiple times, even just in this sermon, but consider James saying, My brothers, my sisters. James, who is both our brother by the blood of Christ and also Jesus' brother by the blood of Mary. This idea of brotherhood, and he says, every good gift, every good gift, my brothers on multiple levels. <laughs> And every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth. By the word of truth that we should be a sort of first fruits of his creatures. Two gleanings for us and we'll close. First. Let us rejoice in the giver of all good gifts, brothers and sisters, every trial, every wisdom, every new growth, every new understanding, every car, every house, every child, every friend, every good gift is from above. Who gives good gifts and bad gifts the next day? That's us. I might give you a high five today and a slap in the face tomorrow. But God, he's the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What does that mean? What is that imagery? Consider that the father in his radiance shines so brightly that it is literally impossible for him to cast a shifting shadow. There is not a shadow around him. This is in the day where sundials is still a thing, right? The Father of lights doesn't change. He shines forth. Consider Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 through 20. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That far-sighted perspective. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. our sure and steadfast hope, the anchor for our souls is that God does not and cannot change. Our second gleaning will also be our closing thought. Verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be A kind of first fruits of his creatures. We're just going to break that down. Of his own will. Okay? By no thought or power in us, we were brought before God. We fled from his presence and he pursued us in love. Brought us forth by the word. The word that I have read and preached to you this morning, Jesus, the Logos, is the only way in which man can be redeemed. For how will they hear without a preacher? And finally, that we should be first fruits. What does that mean? Sort of a weird concept. First fruits were taken from the best of the harvest and set aside to be offered to God. They were the very substance of worship to God. You took the best of your harvest, the best of your labors, the fruits of your labors, and you set them aside and ate all of the second best stuff. How ironic, then, that God should choose spotted, diseased, wicked firstfruits such as us, such as me. All of this throughout the Old Testament bringing into full understanding in the New Testament was a picture. Yeah, those firstfruits you gave, I only took the best. And that was to give us a picture that you and I, as firstfruits, we are not the best. The richest, the most powerful, the most athletic, the smartest. Some of those people might be believers, absolutely. But I'm not any of those. The picture is simple. God chose spotted, wicked, ugly first fruits such as you and I to put his power on display when on the last day we are washed clean, we are given new bodies, and we will be made into the best of the harvest. Nothing that we have done God will bring us and make us worthy first fruits. We have become and are becoming the very substance of worship to our God. Our very existence, our very purpose is to bring honor and glory to him. Consider Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As first fruits brought before God, we are to be living embodiments of worship, living sacrifices. James gave us. Three reasons to rejoice in trials. Rejoice in trials, brother and sister. Our trials give us what we lack. Rejoice in trials, brother and sister. The fear of the Lord conquers physical and spiritual trials. And rejoice in your trials, brother and sister. We worship the giver of all good gifts, all that we lack. Our trials are to be rejoiced. Our lacking will one day soon be deceased. And the gospel, the gospel is oh so good all the way down.